Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Everyone loves a winner. In sports, politics, every type of competition, nobody wants to be on the side of the losers. So why would it be any different when it comes to spiritual and ultimate things? We read in the wisdom books that the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. But looking around, we're not so sure that's what we see. Scripture says the righteous is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. He will be steady. He will not be afraid. And that seems like the kind of thing that could be true one day, but not necessarily today. Being a Christian in this time and place doesn't make it feel like you picked the winning team, does it? I read this week that it's not immediately obvious that the cause of Christ is winning in our world or our neighborhoods. We live in a world that openly opposes God in big and small ways. And what should we think about this? Will God do anything about it? As we covered in Sunday school this morning, Psalm 2 is a kingship psalm or a royal psalm. There are 11 of them in the Psalter, and as another teacher puts it, they speak of the king in the most hopeful and extravagant terms. One line of religious teachers insists that these psalms are only about the line of Israel's earthly kings. These psalms are a bit unlike what scripture says elsewhere about those same kings. You know, the ones who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yes, faithful kings could and did reflect some of the hope expressed in these royal psalms. And the language of these psalms does reflect a commitment to the Davidic 
covenant, the kings that would come after, and in the line of David. But think about the kind of king they're longing for when you read these Psalms. And even David, the greatest of Israel's kings, falls short of the righteous man of Psalm 1 or the everlasting king of Psalm 2. The kingship psalms long for something. They reflect a longing deep within the human heart. And what they long for is something more than any of Israel's earthly kings could ever deliver. But when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered in the language of the kingship psalm. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Acts 4 quotes this language, applying it to Jesus, as does the letter to the Hebrews in chapters 1 and 5. This language is also all over the book of Revelation. I hope you've heard it the last several months. Because the question really is what kind of king can fulfill these lofty promises? What kind of king can live up to the perfect righteousness of Psalm 1 and therefore actually deliver the promised blessing and refuge of Psalm 2? The psalmist connects these first two psalms to tell us that Christ must be the righteous man and the king to whom they point. By the Spirit, he spoke far more than he knew. We observed a couple weeks ago that these psalms are bookended by the word blessed. It's the first verse of Psalm 1. It's the last verse of Psalm 2. Blessed are, blessed is. And there are lots of other linguistic connections as well. The verse that's translated meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2. In Hebrew, that's exactly the same word translated plot. In Psalm 2, verse 1, it's about thinking deeply. One kind of person thinks deeply about the work of God, and another thinks just as deeply about how he can throw off God's rule. The first two Psalms have thematic unity, each bringing clarity to the other. Psalm 2 teaches us more detail about the way of sinners that we read about in Psalm 1. And it encourages us to go back to Psalm 1 to answer the question, what kind of king do we really need? Psalm 2 unfolds in four scenes of three verses each. And it's funny, sometimes a scholar gets it so right that every other scholar uses him. And it's H.A. Ironside. He made the famous observation that there's a different speaker in each of these four scenes and every modern commentary follows his lead. There's the voice of the world, the voice of the Father, the voice of the Son, and the voice of the Spirit. And together, these voices offer a powerful address to a world of unbelievers who feel victorious and a world of believers who fear the battle is lost. First, the voice of the world. That's verses 1 through 3. The scene takes place in a council meeting of the world's great rulers. They're scheming 
plotting, thinking deeply about the overthrow of Yahweh and his appointed king. The royal psalms are all in on the idea that God has chosen a people for himself and established a righteous king who will rule those people securely forever. And the kings of earth hate every part of that plan. So the psalmist begins with the rhetorical question, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It's nations and peoples. And verse 2, kings and rulers. This is a worldwide and a class-wide rebellion. And it's not just political leaders. The language here is all-encompassing. Another man points out rightly that it really is describing all human beings insofar as we have power or exert influence. Well, that's everybody. It's the big ones, media moguls, movie directors and producers, news channel editors, anchors, bloggers, celebrities. But it's also us. It's anyone who can make a difference in the world, anyone who can influence another toward Christ or away from him. We're all included and all share in this rebellion. They band together. And what do they want? A different kind of king. They want freedom from God. Burst their bonds. Cast away their cords. That suggests what they really want to cast away is his lordship. They want to break the bonds of the creator-creature relationship. I am the boss of me. They want to be their own gods, like the, our first parents in the garden. They want to determine for themselves good and evil. And so to get what they want, they will resist God's anointed king, and thus they resist the authority of God himself. That desire isn't so hard to understand, is it? It was there in the garden. At times, it's there in our own hearts. Our desire for sin stirs up rebellious hearts to justify that sin. We want what we want. And we will think and say all kinds of things to justify it. Just do this. Think about your last intentional sin. The time when you consciously chose sin rather than the alternative. In the moment, was it really that hard to convince yourself that it was justified? Or that it was better for you than righteousness? Now that part isn't difficult at all. That's why these rebels in scene one say everything as if it's just that easy. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To choose sin is easy, yes. And to justify it to ourselves even more so. But they're missing a part. Because to justify it before God is not so easy. To, to actually choose sin, to, to burst those bonds and relieve ourselves of any obligation before God? Well, that cannot be done so easily. And that's where the second scene or the second speaker sets the record straight. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's not, of course, that God thinks that this rebellion or any sin is humorous. The laughter is not of amusement, but of judgment. It says he holds them in derision. These attempts 
at insurgency have only brought disgrace. These rebels are laughingstocks. Here's a good summary. It's understandable that sinners should want to reject God's rule. That's what sin is, a repudiation of God's rule in favor of one's own will. But although it is understandable, the folly of this attempt surpasses belief. How can mere human beings expect to get rid of God? That's why, and this is the only place in the Bible where this is said, God laughs. Kids, imagine all the cockroaches in the world join together and decide they're going to build a bridge to the sun. Wouldn't you laugh at them? We'd say, it's 94 million miles away. You can't do that, you stupid bugs. And then if they said, don't worry, there's a lot of us. We can make it. We'd laugh. And we'd say, even if you got within 6 million miles of the sun, you would burn to a crisp in an instant. And of course, the roaches would say, no, 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 we figured that out. We're going to go at night. This is the level of absurdity of human beings saying they will break the bonds of God. It's why he who sits in the heavens laughs. The kings and the rulers plot and scheme. They get all their smartest people working on it. They've got the whiteboards. They meditate day and night. And in the end, they devise a plan to reject the rule of God and his anointed king. And they declare it publicly to all. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what is God's reaction to these haughty words? As another preacher said, God does not tremble. God does not hide behind a vast celestial rampart, counting the enemy and calculating whether or not he has sufficient force to counter this challenge to his kingdom. God does not even stand up from where he's sitting. He sees these great imbeciles and he simply laughs. The roaches are going to build a bridge to the sun. They think they can stop him. They think they can prevent his king and his word and his purposes. But look at the tense of verse 5. I have set my king on Zion. It's done. Believer, I know it doesn't feel that way sometimes. I know that life under the sun is full of hardship. Psalm 2 acknowledges the rebellion currently at work in this world. But it ends the way Psalm 1 began. It's a psalm of joy with a path to blessedness. Because there are evil powers at work in this world. And none of them, even all of them added together, can stop the purposes of God and the power of his word and his anointed king. Just this week, we saw new signs of instability of Vladimir Putin's grip on power. This is a dictator who's literally changed the rules to stay in office longer than was legal. He's had opponents jailed and enemies murdered. And on the surface, to be on his side seems to be secure. 
This kind of king can never provide security. To live within the blessing of security and peace, you need someone greater than any of earth's kings. And that king, the one God set on Zion, he's the speaker in scene three. Jesus is both the subject and the speaker of verses seven through nine. He's declaring his right to rule. A right that is established by the anointing of God. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. That language should be familiar to us. It's the language the father uses at both Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. Paul uses this language about Christ, teaching about the resurrection. Earlier in Acts, when the church was persecuted and needed God's power to persevere and to withstand that assault, Jesus' followers used these words about him in prayer. The Old Testament saints longed for this kind of king. The New Testament saints knew that they had found him. I found this analogy helpful that when an army officer arrives to take a new command... He has to bring orders with him to show that he has the right to be in charge. If a man takes over without orders, he's breaking the chain of command. He's acting on his own. And what happens in these verses is that Christ repeats God's decree. He presents his orders to the people of the world to prove that he has the legitimate right to be their king. Verses 8 and 9 then summarize the effect of the possible responses to his claim. Receiving Christ as God's anointed includes you among his glorious heritage. It is the way of blessedness. But those who instead remain committed to bursting their bonds and cutting away their cords, well, they shall be broken with a rod of iron dashed into pieces like a potter's vessel. As we grow in theological depth and understanding, we should still never forget how fundamentally simple the call of the gospel is. What kind of king do you want? Do you want a king who by brute force and temporary victories can give you a feeling of security in the moment. Well then, try to burst the bonds of God and walk in the way of sinners. But be warned, that way lies death. Broken with a rod of iron, dashed like a potter's vessel. It's a laughable choice, but it's not funny in the least to those who love you. For security and satisfaction, to inherit the blessedness of life with God, we need the king he has firmly established. Our efforts to pick the winning side by keeping score in this life, fancying ourselves great strategists and critics of the way God runs his world, all of this has drastically overcomplicated things. What matters is simply this. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son today, I have begotten you. The fourth and final scene 
It appears initially to be in the voice of the psalmist himself, offering a concluding admonition in response to the first three scenes. He's sort of the narrator, tying it together. But but look more closely. Look at some of the words and ideas in these last three verses. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Who brings wisdom from on high? Be warned, O rulers of earth. Who brings conviction? Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Who sanctifies the believer? Verse 12, kiss the son. Who changes the loves of a rebel heart from itself in the world and toward the son of God? Yes, these verses are the voice of the spirit of God. Only by his admonition can we apply the word of God to our hearts and lives. Preaching only works because the spirit of God works through it. What's needed for blessing is a loyalty to God that replaces the heart of rebellion. And that loyalty can only come by a changed human heart. Only the spirit can do that. And this king, this righteous King, your king, he knows that. He said, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 11 is a great summary of what that helper, the spirit can work in us. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. One preacher taught that there must ever be a holy fear mixed with Christian joy because fear without joy is torment and joy without holy fear is presumption. Another called this a mature, complex response. To respond rightly to God, we need to see his beauty and goodness so clearly that we respond with joy because we love him. And we also need to see his terrifying power so clearly that we tremble before him. The king of Psalm 2 does not lack power. His power inspires true terror. But that terror only need be realized in those who oppose him because that same power can be used to free and forgive us from the self-destructive rebellion that's in us from birth. That power is displayed daily in our need as we labor on in both weakness and rejoicing. That power is what defends us from eternal dangers. That power is what leads us safely through the darkest valleys. The message of Psalm 2, one commentator concludes, is that God has powerfully and decisively set his son on the throne to end this world's rebellion. Christians, God will not let this go on forever. He tells us that he has raised up a king with authority over every person and every nation. Your security, your satisfaction, a life of blessedness is found only under the reign of of that king. 
Don't fall for the proud and presumptuous solicitations of the kings and the rulers of this world. That's not the kind of king you need. By the Spirit's help and power, listen to the voice of God. Serve and follow the king that he has set on Zion. You will be secure. You will be satisfied. You will be blessed. Psalms 1 and 2 go together. This is the way and this is the king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 